welcome to Directly Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Dr. Max Blumberg. All the atoms, I mean, you know, if you believe that nothing can be created or destroyed, then all the energy that is you must have been there 14 billion years ago. Yeah. Nothing new. So that's what got me into cosmology. Well, <clears throat> and that's all I just, but at some point it's just mixing and matching things that were already there, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, things well, we combine are. into certain elements and then they uncombine and combine again and you know, stars blow up. And yeah, I yeah. sound really smart right now. Oh, well, apparently the sun is a third generation star. So two other stars have already lived entire celestial life, exploded, recombined, exploded. Now we have our son who's really a middle-aged sort of star and has another few so billion here, here, years. Here's a, here's a scientific question. How on earth do they know that? <laughs> like, how <laughs> would you know that a sun exploded and recreated itself? Because if you look back, I mean, it's back, it's back to Scott's lines and, and, and looking mm-hmm. at red shift and that kind of thing. But you, if you look, you know that everything that we are seeing here is like a couple of million years old that most of the stuff we see in space mm-hmm. by the time the light gets to us. And so it's like doing in, in research terms that you would be familiar with. It's like doing a whole lot of cross-sectional little experiments so that you can't see one story but you can see stars at different stages of their development because you know by the color, it's blue, yellow, whatever the spectrum is that it's throwing up. And so you can piece together, ah, oh, so that one is at a really old stage. That one is fairly new, da, 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 da. And then, like, and then you turn it into a, a pseudo longitudinal uh, experiment by putting all of those together to give you a hypothesized trajectory for that star. And that's how you make up these stories. And again, they're all theory. That's the key. That's a that's a really good transition to like people analytics. Like, do we suspect that what we're seeing here is a totally unique phenomenon? You see this in organizations like our culture is totally different, or is it typical of the general human experience? And therefore, we should see it in other areas, or like, or or we are view, viewing this in other areas. Our group is probably very much similar. Well, do we? Do you mind, Scott, if we tell our audience who this person that we're talking to is? <laughs> I think we should at some point. Yeah. Well, let me let me introduce you real quick, Max. So Max is a psychologist, mathematician, statistician, computer scientist, and it sounds like budding cosmologist as well, um, who has run some of the first people analytics large-scale projects using you know multi-level modeling and logistic regression in the past, even helped a company increase its revenue by $70 million. But it sounds like from our conversations, Max, too, one of the things that gets you the most excited is being kind of a mentor or helping the community grow and, and kind of really helping people develop and reach their potential. So I think you, you have, I can say this from personal experience, you have a really great combination of the technical skills, but also the soft skills and the heart to make this, you know, this thing go around. So that's one of the reasons why I, I personally really wanted to have you on the podcast today. But I think we're having a really good conversation about a bunch of stuff that I know nothing about. <laughs> Do you mind if we switch into some things that, you That's know, very are... kind of you. Can, can I just add something to what you say? You know, the, about sure. the combination of heart and soft skills. So, yeah. So, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but the soft skills, not that I have soft skills, by the way, I, 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 I like to help people grow their careers and, you know, and, and I can do that because I have some hard skills which kind of allow me to make predictions about the way things should go, even if it isn't always the way they go. But I just got so bored with people analytics after starting it, as you said, you know, 2011, 2012, whatever. And truly, I wrote a course for the CIPD, which is the equivalent of, of, of SHRM uh, here in the UK and in Europe. And I wrote their people analytics course. And I included everything that if you've done research, you would know. So I've done you know, experimental design, uh, AI, machine learning, how to put things together, how to measure, uh, validity, psychometrics, all of that. How much of that is actually being used in people analytics today? Not a whole lot. So you can kind of give that lecture for 10 years until 2021 over the same slides. No one's pushing me into new ideas and new areas excepting for your podcast 
was the first time <clears throat> that I felt new ground was being broken in people analytics. You can only do that for so long before you get really, really bored. And that's why I thought, you know, while people analytics catches up, and let's hope it does, I'll just get into career development because at least that's new and, and novel. That's, that's the real reason. I, I feel like I, I share a lot of the sentiments about, you know, sometimes getting bored or, or it's not really bored. It's just the feeling of stagnation, right? That, that, that sometimes you feel like, okay, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, is that maybe we've plateaued too early and there was no reason for that plateau to happen because there's so much more ground left to be covered. What if, was there like a, a moment that happened for you where you were like, ah, we, we really plateaued or, or is there like a use case out there that you're saying, hey, this is what we should be going after that we're not. And why am I the only person who's seeing this? I mean, it's really clear what we should be going after. We should, people analytics should clearly be about looking at the organizational strategy, working out what workforce capabilities do we need to enable it and putting together some people processes to do it. Same as manufacturing does in the organization. They look at the strategy, they say, here are the widgets we need to manufacture, and they work backwards and they buy the right machines. And, and, and when you're doing software, you know, the software people go back and they work out, here's the spec that we need. But when it comes to the workforce, nobody kind of reads the strategy, elicits the capabilities required, like here are the manufacturing capabilities. Here are the marketing capabilities mm -hmm. that we need. Here are the logistical capabilities. Here are the development capabilities. Nobody says what are the workforce capabilities we need to execute the strategy. Well, what do you think that, what we what, do what do you think that print, is? We print dashboards, huh? What do you think that is? Why, why is it so ubiquitous well, in other areas, but not people analytics? I'd love to hear your, your I, I, you know, I think it's because people, there's a perception that people are not predictable. People are not widgets. They're different yeah. from, from boxes, kind of reductionists, all that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, there's, no, but that's not true either because people are also consumers and they do that kind of marketing to consumers all that's the time. That's so true. That's so true. Yeah. I also wonder like, how much of this is the fact that a lot of people analytics functions are housed in HR and therefore you can perform all these like fancy statistics, et cetera, but everything eventually gets boiled down to oh, a, a mean score or a percentage that's easily digestible by upper level leaders where like all the fancy statistics, all the uh, really deep diving insights kind of get washed away in a lot of, re a lot of respect. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, sorry, go for a call. Well, I, I was just going to kind of answer your earlier question, Max, about like why, why isn't you know, HR doing this or why isn't the business seeing it more in this line? I've been a big fan of your model called the human capital value profiling. And I think it's a great way. And I, I don't know if you have like a hyperlink or something that we could share and put in the show notes for sure people to educate themselves on this afterwards. But I, I really think the root cause of the problem is a lack of creativity. Mm. And what I mean by that is your value profiler shows the direct linkages between business strategy and then the supporting mechanisms that from a human capital standpoint that would support the business strategy. And I just, I think that a lot of people, first of all, that work in an HR function, oftentimes don't even know the business strategy or don't even really understand how the business makes money. So that's problem number one. But problem number two is, and again, this gets back to that lack of creativity. It's like, how could something I'm doing or that I'm supporting the business to do actually contribute to that strategy being more profitable or more, more innovative or gathering more consumers or whatever it may be that, that that organization is trying to pursue. And I think that the human capital value profiler gives an excellent framework for someone who maybe lacks that creativity. I don't know. Do you yeah. have anything you'd like to comment in that regard? I mean, there's no question about it that, that a value profiler like instrument because I don't want to you know push the value profile actually but something that links what we do in HR which should only be processes if we're not doing it as a process maybe we can have a discussion you can debate and say why is everything a process you can the answer is if it's not a process it's going to be done ad hoc and differently all over the place um, 
which is not generally used in organizations. But it's a, it, in a sense, it takes a, away some of the need for creativity by standardizing here is how our recruitment process affects our talent and leadership capability. And that in turn affects our productivity and that in turn affects our revenue. Once you accept that kind of chain, you can then um, spend more time designing, now the creativity comes in, a recruitment process that actually gives you the talent and leadership capability that you're looking for. But, but can I just say slightly charitably uh, on the boredom part as well, is that it could be maturity and, and development coming along. Because although I know the three of us, having listened to your podcast, we, none of us are huge fans of descriptive statistics. I mean, we, we know that we need them. Um, but, you know, we also know that there's so much more to life than dashboards and visualizations, you know, like using predictive for that. But, but the fact is that I've been getting more calls in the last month for the value profiler than I've ever got before from people saying, Max, can you come in and talk to our team? about this. So maybe it's just a developmental curve that people will get to the statistics. To, to Scott's point earlier that, you know, the executives don't really need to see the deep statistics and stuff. Scott, when I told the story earlier about eliciting the strategy from the executives and reading the business plan and then translating that into what are the workforce capabilities that we require, at no point did I use the word statistics in that description. That, that whole process could be done qualitatively and, and often is and often should be. You, know, you don't need stats to translate every business plan and every business strategy into a people process. A lot of that can be done. Totally. And, and a lot of it just needs to be directionally correct, you know, to borrow our, the title of our podcast. <laughs> Here. <laughs> like, like, uh, at what point does say reporting end and say people analytics begin in your mind um well i uh, i think people analytics i'm not sure that's i'm not even sure that's the right question for me people analytics is designed people analytics exists to ensure that organizations have the workforce capabilities they need to execute their business strategy. Like a, a, a predictive function. Well, I mean, you, you need some dashboard to do that. For hypothesis generation, might be nice to keep a track on performance scores. Right. You know, and say, yeah, yeah, oh, performance scores going down. Let's get hypothesizing, folks. Why are they going down? Generate some hypothesis scientific method you know, generate some hypotheses from the dashboards and the KPIs and stuff that you see. Hypotheses gather, generate the data instead of looking in the HRIS because the data you need to solve a serious problem by definition is probably not in your organization. Look at the dashboard, say, there's the problem, create some hypotheses, collect the data, build a model to test it with, implement the findings by designing a new people program. Simple. Oh, that is <laughs> so analytics. so simple. <laughs> and, and it is really, you know. So there are dashboards in that process. There are uh, analytical models in that process. There's data engineering. All of the things that yes, have, all of those are people analytics. But the problem is, in that today's world, people feel that people analytics is mostly the dashboards. Yeah, I, I, I feel that totally. And and a lot of like our fancy stats get washed aside, really. Uh, but it does take like a, a big technical debt to get up and running. Um, as such, like, what, what would you say to folks that want to get into people analytics? What, what do they need to really know? People analytics is a big place. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. So it depends where you want to get into. You know, do you want to be a leader? Do you want to be um, a consultant. Consultant is the person that reads the business plan and the business strategy and translates it into workforce capabilities. Do you want to be the person that makes beautiful visualizations and dashboards? Do you want to be the person that collects and looks after the data to ensure that the data has integrity and that it's valid 
Do you want to be the person that builds the psychometric model? So in a sense, if you follow the scientific model all the way through from hypothesis generation, well, you know, what's the, what's the research question? That's kind of one role, analyst type role. You know, then there is generate hypotheses. I guess that is done by, should be done by business leaders and HR people. And by the way, generate hypotheses is not hypotheses about the workforce. <laughs> you know, how, what's our employee experience like? What's the stress? What's the engagement? It's hypotheses about our productivity. How can we improve our productivity by creating what workforce capability do we need to do that? And the answer may be we need to maybe split it 50% automation, 50% workforce. Oh, cool. So what kind of people will we need for that? Well, I reckon the kind of people to do that process, my hypothesis is this IQ, this dexterity with the hands, this drawing ability. Cool. Can we grab a group of 400 employees, rank them on dexterity and all of those things, throw a bunch of tests at them, work out who has got whether those capabilities really do cause high performance um, in that productivity that we need. If they do, we build a people process, a recruitment process specifically to do that. Or if it's a learnable characteristic, we stick it into L&D. So one of the key things is to know is what is the difference between learnable things and fixed intrapersonal characteristics. So to answer your question, there are so many jobs, modeling, data engineering, consulting, uh, leadership, in people analytics, to, to say what does a people analytics person need to be is like saying, well, you know, what does a mother need to be? <laughs> a bunch <laughs> of things to be a mother. It is totally fair. Like there's a place in IO for everyone, no matter kind of what you want to do. Uh, but I, I think overall, you need to be on top of your stats game, no matter what, no matter what function you fall into you better at least be able to speak to statistics at some level. How about instead of statistics, how would you feel? This is a genuine question. Uh, it's something I, I, I use a lot. How about reasoning ability instead? Because, and, and my reason is that when I meet senior leaders and really hot ones, I have to say that most senior leaders I, I meet are really, really good. I don't think yeah. you get to be a senior leader in a big, you may not be a nice person. I'm not saying that they're lovely people, but I'd say to rise high in an organization to be a leader, you're normally smart, if, if nothing else. They have got remarkable reasoning about it. I mean, they make me feel really stupid, some of them. Because you can say, well, why don't we do this to the workforce? That's crazy. You know, that's going to happen, then that's going to happen, then da 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 da, da. <laughs> so, so how would you feel about replacing statistical ability for many people analytics folks with excellent reasoning ability? Yeah, I think that, like, Godfrey's been, like, figured this out a long time ago, that, you know, the higher you go into an organization or the more abstract your work gets, the more fluid intelligence, you want to, like, borrow, like, could tell, you need uh, otherwise, you start seeing this like waterfall effect of like someone gets put into a position where they are kind of out the Peter principle. It, oh, yeah, they're, they're outmatched for their level of intelligence and they start sliding back down the uh, uh, organizational hierarchy. Yeah, me, me reached your maximum level of incompetence. But, uh, <laughs> well, well, Max, but would, mean, you, how, would, would you accept how, this how? revision? Because uh, in the models that I've built, and I think this, this might be a synonym of reasoning, I always put critical and analytical thinking. Yeah, that's good. Like the ability to model out something complex in your mind uh, without actually needing to model it yeah. phys like physically on a computer yeah, screen yeah. or something like that. Any, anything, anything, you know, if you did a factor analysis on it, would be all that stuff would squeeze into kind of into one factor. But let me just ask you, you know, you've both, Done projects. In all honesty, if you look at the time consumed on a people and on a, on a proper people analytics project, now we're talking about not building your dashboard, but we're talking about like doing a predictive something. Um, how much time was actually spent on the statistical model? Yeah, I, this is something, and I've seen a few people acknowledge this before publicly, and I feel like they get torched for saying it. But, and I, I feel like this is an unshareable secret, but I'm going to say it. Uh, I, and this is even <laughs> even back when I was an individual contributor, because I don't I don't uh, like Scott knows this. I don't do a whole heck of a lot of modeling anymore. But even when you're an individual contributor, probably 
graciously 5% of your time if is that. spent doing this work. And it's very much like thinking about like the IO psychology background, it's very much like a critical incidence technique. It's almost so infrequently used that it's a critical incident. Um, and it's not a day-to-day operation. And day-to-day operation is, you know, oftentimes it's not even data. It's like things like meetings and calls and stakeholdering and all of the, you know, you might even consider them to be the unfun aspects of people analytics. I don't know, Scott, what would you say there? Yeah, I mean, it's totally fair. Like if, if you like just go straight to the modeling portion, it, it's very small. Like pushing that button and watching it run is fantastic. But it's no secret that the vast majority of your time, once you get the data, is cleaning, setting it up, you know, get it into a state that you can push that button. Well, and just run. getting the data. Oh, oh, that can be painful too. And there's all sorts of security issues associated with that, et cetera. I thought, Cole, you were going to go on a different theory that you have around the time spent on a project and the impact that it has. Oh, yeah. I was actually talking about oh, this with somebody yesterday. Uh, am I on mute? I don't there think I'm go. on mute. There you go. Okay. Well, we can I, I, okay. I, I was actually talking about this with somebody yesterday because they, I guess they had read one of my articles where I said, there's no correlation between the amount of time you spend on, on something and the impact it has on the organization. You said that in the second episode. Yeah, I think I think maybe I've covered it here before too, because like this is uh, I mean this is I hate I wish it wasn't this way, but that can be like an earth shattering moment for some individuals because they're like I spent six months on this project <laughs> and nobody listened, like yeah. nobody cared, and I was like, well, that's not their fault. That's actually your fault, and you have to make sure that. The work that you're putting into something is proportional to the the expected value of the output and how it's going to make a change in the organization. I mean, that I, I can back that up. I, I've had projects that have lasted uh, a year long, and I've had things that I've just you know just heard in meetings and like gone home that night and run a, a two hour little project and gotten a ton of traction out of these little couple hour insights and people just eat it up. Whereas the other ones, maybe the audience goes away. Uh, maybe, you know, just the, the appetite just isn't there anymore. It, it's, you're totally right. There's very little correlation between what you run and uh, but the they could, but they, but they could be, they could be. Uh, if, if you, if you arrange things differently, I, I, I would say, you know, since we talk about, you know, what percent, if we, let's start assigning percentages to different activities in, in proper predictive or alignment projects, you know, aligning workforce capabilities with that. Um, I, I haven't done this before, so I'm really doing this live. I do know that the actual model building, et cetera, was, is your 5%, although that's the thing people think that you're the cleverest when you do it. And maybe you are. Maybe that is the thing you went to university. That's the moneymaker, Max. Yeah. But it's true. You know, that, that's your advantage. That's why you did the PhD, dude, so that you could do your, just because it takes you five minutes, that's your good luck. Um, but, but I, and this is where my projects, I think, are different to other people's. I would say that 40% to 50% upfront is stakeholder management, which I will give a shout out here to uh, Oliver Casper, um, who was at Swarovski and, uh, you know, done some amazing work. He knows people and knows managers. And um, 50% of it is internal comms, preparing people, getting them ready for the project, excited. So by the time you then spend the uh, maybe 30% getting data, so we've got 40 and 30, 70. Um, Then there's like data cleaning, another 20, execution. Uh, you know, we could probably do it better, but you get the general picture. Yeah, yeah. An upfront time of prepping people and getting them excited, etc. It's also a stage gate because if you don't get the excitement, you don't do the project. So you're not wasting time doing all of that analysis and doing all of that stuff. Uh, you don't start doing it if you know that people aren't going to want it. Well, yeah, that, this is also the uh, draw of reporting metrics. Business leaders have a question they want to answer. They want to answer now, not, oh, well, we're going to go back. We're going to go into our little like uh, analyst huddle room. We'll come back in three months, six months. By then, the business moved on. The question's no longer relevant. Yeah. Uh, but a dashboard, it can give you some idea right now. Yeah. Well, you've yes. hit on two points. There's no things. controls. 
Yeah. yeah, you've hit up on two points of things that I, I bring up often. One is you have to get commitment to take action before you start a project. Mm-hmm. You should. You, I mean, I won't do a project if I don't get commitment okay. to take action. But the second thing, is, and this is this is really important, is you know, nobody has time to wait around six months. No. So the ideal version is to have predicted the types of questions that need to be answered six months in the past to answer the problem yeah. today. And so that when the, at the question gets asked, the answer is readily available. Because you said that's the benefit of reporting, Scott. But when you productize people analytics type projects the, and, and trying to change it from a project into a process like Max was saying earlier, uh, when, when you have that process and it already exists, then it's ready to answer the problem when the question is asked. And I think that's ner- like people analytics nirvana. And we can also come full circle. Like this is where people analytics needs to be more in tune with the business and what their future needs are. And there it is. So you see, so, so, so people analytics in isolation without the strategy dashboards in place. You see, if you use my approach of starting with the strategy every single time and speaking to executives, you'll never get into a project that isn't needed in the company. You'll only be saying, yeah. what is the workforce capability that we'll need uh, from three to five years from now? And that's based on the strategy. If you've got really good dashboards telling you the status of your productivity and your innovation and those organizational capabilities, the second they go out of filter, then you start going into action because you know it's needed. If you start just randomly doing stuff because somebody says do it, there you go. Well, I've got a question about that, Max. So one thing that I've run into in my career, and I, I would really like your kind of coaching or advice on this, honestly, is people have told me that I'm too interested, and these are HR people, mind you, that I'm too interested and too connected to making sure that everything that HR does has value to the business strategy, and that I'm insufficiently being a employee advocate. Or, or some variant of that, like call it employee advocate, because they, I think a lot of people in HR believe that HR's role is solely to be the employee advocate. How would you counter that? Or what, what's your perspective on that? And I'm actually thinking about this in the frame of this article that came out this week about the HR is not your friend, right? And is HR even really an employee advocate? Um, I, I think we've both read this. And so I don't know, can you kind of spin that up a little bit, Max? Uh, I, let me just pull on that sort of hat and watch out for the guy there with the Frankenstein switch because I, <laughs> I think you're yeah. putting me to a very dangerous chair there uh, <laughs> to answer that. Uh, this hat is really tight. Um, well, a- answer the parts that you like and you can leave the other ones. No, no, I'm happy. no I'm happy to tackle the whole thing. Um, I fully believe that organizations, uh, commercial organizations are controlled by uh, a board ultimately and that they their job is to look after the shareholders that is legally written into their job so it's not about the planet they are not legally bound they will not go to jail if they don't look after the planet or not as much as they will if they don't look after the shareholders and they will not go to jail as much if they don't look after the employee so that is written into what boards have to do And so it's natural that if there's an HR function that says, well, we're going to put the employees first, the board says, well, we're not going to jail. So we're going to replace you with an HR function and an HR leader that does put the shareholders first in their place. So if you want to make changes here, then you're talking about kind of changing the law. Then I I, I always say you need to put on your activist red T-shirt because that's the level of change that you're talking about if you want to change that. But it is a fact that HR is required to support the shareholders, not the employee. I, I really think that HR somewhat has an identity crisis. And the reason why is because I think there are these competing notions of being the employee advocate and then being the advocate of just the shareholder. And I think that they have not found a good reconciliation for that. And, and so it is strange, again, kind of going back to my initial question, that I'm in HR, I'm working on stuff that is going to support the business. The business obligates me to only support the shareholders, 
and I'm being chided for not being sufficiently employee, you know, employee focused, even though I am very employee focused in my work, at least in my opinion, because everything that my teams do is for the benefit of the employees. I refuse to do projects that would do the otherwise. But then you have, you know, those same people will be doing things that aren't in the best interest of employees at times. And they'll just say, ah, my hands are tied. And, and so it's, it's, I don't know. I think there's an identity crisis of sorts there. I'd like to meet these HR people who are advocates and who still have jobs, because truly, I don't see how you can keep your job in the long term. But let me just say that a lot of people listening to this will come back with this as their argument. They'll say that's just not true, though. I mean, we are working on employee experience. We are working at improving all of these retentions and so on. And I say, you're only improving retention and improving salary and improving experience to the minimum level you can to get the required productivity to drive the shareholder profit. You will not provide an ounce more employee experience than you need to to achieve that shareholder level. You know that if you work employees to death, you'd love to work them for 23 hours a day. But you know you can't do that. So what do you do? You might ask them for an extra two hours. You'll paint the walls pink. You'll make it fluffy. You'll give them lots of Gen Z technology. You'll say all the right words. But you're only doing that to improve the productivity. You're not doing it for the employee. You're doing it for the productivity for the shareholder. There's a huge difference in helping employees achieve self-actualization to making them happier so that they'll serve the shareholders better. An enormous difference in attitude. Can't, can't both things be true though? I mean, like on one hand, of course, like HR is part of the business and like they're forwarding the business objectives to make money so that we can all be employed, etc. But if you provide a kick-ass work environment and, you know, uh, uh, provide better leadership, communication, you know, all these sort of great things that make employee more productive, that improves their lives as well, because we do spend so much time on the job okay. to make money, et cetera. Okay. So let me ask you a question. Let's say that the value generated by this company that um, currently make up a number, 80% of it goes to the shareholders mm-hmm. and 20% of it goes to uh, the employees. I'm sure some of it goes to suppliers, and other people like that. What, what percentage would you propose taking away from the shareholders and giving to the employees? And how would you come to that? I, I don't even know if I'm, I'm qualified to answer that question. Um, none of us are, probably. But, but in principle, it's really... Well, Scott, tough. do you remember the episode with Seku? Because he asked a very interesting variant of this question as well. Because it, it, essentially, it's, it's a question if you polled like a thousand people it's a fairness question because they would say, uh, like, h- how many people would you have to talk to and get a read on it? And everybody's kind of kind of come with their own personal view on what's considered fair in that kind of breakdown. But the reality is they're not, you know, crowdsourcing this. It- it's going to be executive decisions that are made that, that, that yeah, it's well, exactly. like, what, 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 what's the alternative? Like we, we stop running the business and... Uh... No, we carry on with 80% shell. Oh, okay. Yeah. And we just give the minimum. You know, what's the minimum we can get away with? 20% to employees. If we can do that. If we really start productivity and shareholder profits start going down, boy, what do we do? We either get rid of employees and automate or oh, pay them more. I suppose we'll keep them a little bit longer. <laughs> well, the Walls, pinker, you know. That's what it boils down to. This is like a level high, a uh, like Adam Smith wisdom of the crowd, or like let the market hand dictate this sort of stuff. And you find this Pareto optimal sort of distribution between uh, allocation to the shareholder and the employees, because if they allocate too much to the shareholders, people aren't going to want to work there anymore. And the other thing would be true too. Like you allocate too much, you have too much uh, expenses on one hand. Uh, shareholders, their stock value is going to go down, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so and indeed, maybe just the market is swinging. But indeed, the market is swinging because we are starting to see that whereas my generation took whatever the man gave them, that 
current generations are kind of not doing that uh, because they can, because yeah. there's so much kind of remote work, because there's so much contractual, there's so much gig work, uh, there's so much outsourcing that they can say, well, I've got more choice. So you're going to have to take something away um, from the shareholders and get, well, they don't say that, they just say, you've got to give me more. And you're going to work out where that comes from. Yeah, I mean, like, if you think that the great resignation is bad, like, wait till the great never applied when people just have options and go. they're not going to deal with the fucking bullshit. Yeah. Well exactly. said, Scott. Well said. Um, I'm curious because you brought up something there really interesting and it's kind of been a theme on the podcast. And I'm wondering if, if that's why you brought it up, Max, which is this whole work from home versus work, you know, going back in person, hybrid, future of work, ongoing debate here. And I'm wondering if you, do you have a perspective on that at all? And, and, you know, what, and, and, you know, from your perspective as how you've been working in the past and I guess kind of self-employed versus like the Gen Z version or, or I, I don't know, what, what are your views on this? I suspect your views are more informed than mine having listened to this. But my, my view currently is that where employers can find a more efficient resource to do the work, they will use it. There's no love that, you know, in our hearts, we feel mm -hmm. that we need to donate more of our value to employees and ensure working people it doesn't work like so, so whenever employees and workforces can be replaced, they will. Therefore, issues like remote work is a temporary issue. Because they know that so much of that work is being automated by people like me. I so I, I, I'm an AI. That's what I enjoy doing. Um, and we automate. You know, sometimes I automate, and I, do I feel guilty? And no, I tell myself that I'm doing it because I'm enhancing the careers of people who are there. And so I'm giving them better tools and more time to be creative. That doesn't often end up happening. People get more time, and and they get the tools, but then they get rid of the people. So. So I feel that a lot of human capital problems are temporary problems. And, and we are feeling an era of revolution in the world at the moment where workers generally, I mean, you know, I'm looking what's happening in the States uh, at Starbucks. Uh, I'm looking at what's happening here in the UK uh, with labor and strikes, etc. Um, we are reaching uh, a bit of a tipping point with that. So, you know, a lot of these, I don't know the answers because Political instabilities could, could be the joker that changes the whole shape of the way things go in business. I don't think it's going to be incremental, smooth change. I think we're looking at a radical discontinuity, um, maybe in the next 10, 15 years. So human capital questions to me are fairly temporary. Well, you heard it here first. Max is predicting revolution. So get ready. Uh, uh, Max, it sounds like you're the boogeyman we've been talking about here about automating people's jobs away. So we just uh, we know where the pitchforks are going to go. Well, 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 here's the thing. I've always said that human resources, you know, it's quite funny, all of us being psychologists and all that. I've always said that human resources is kind of limiting. Um, shouldn't we just be resource managers? So when an organization has a strategy, at what point does uh, Google decide this is how much we're going to invest in automation and this is how much we're going to invest in workforce. I think it's kind of done fairly ad hoc. Um, I think that organizations need a single resource management, not human resource management, all resource management. And it looks at all the, you could call it productivity resource management. So in order to be productive, what is the split that we need between human, automation, outsource, gig, et cetera, et cetera. Apparently, yeah. I don't know any organization that has a single function. So all the human capital uh, is allocated via one department, manufacturing by another. Why don't we have a common resource management function in organization? Well, let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me speak to that a little bit. I think it's because of the shortcomings of top-down management. And what I mean by that is, when it comes to like capital allocation planning and resource planning from for the company, oftentimes budgets are allocated to functions because they can't go line by line and say, okay, this is the percentage towards gig, this is a percentage towards human capital, this is a percentage towards automation, and so on and so forth. And so ultimately those decisions get made 
lower and lower in the organizations because that's where the, those decisions are made. The problem is once they're made lower in the organization, it becomes a much more difficult coordination problem to make sure that X is coordinating with Y because that's going to impact Z. And, and it's just, frankly, a challenging thing. But then the converse would be, is like, does the top management executive team have to plan every single decision and every dollar spent for the whole company? That would be all, I guess they would be spending their time doing 24-7. And, and obviously they probably have better things to do. I don't do. think that they would need to do that. All I'm saying is that at the top, you create the strategy and then you say, what are the four drivers in terms of productivity, innovation, quality, and customer growth? Right. Productivity. What percentage of that do we think needs to, can be, if you prefer, automated versus human capital? Uh, or outsourced or gigged or whatever. Right. Well, Next I think step. that takes innovation. us even back to the value profile. Okay, right, right. Innovation, the answer is normally going to be human capital because machines aren't really good at doing that. So Yet. all you would do is make one decision is well, for each of those areas is to say this is the split between human capital and all the other productive means of production, as they say in economics. That is the split between that. And now you push it down. So the human capital, we are going to do 30% of our productivity with human capital because there aren't machines to do that yet. HR, please recruit, develop, make sure that in three years time, we have people who can do this kind of productive work, please. Automation, Folks, will you please make sure we have the robots that can produce that? That's a top-down decision. Works well. Well, Did now you... I'm depressed, and I just want us to go back to talking about cosmology again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, like that's a great thought, Max. But it also strikes me that it's like highly bureaucratic, and I, I see organizations switching to more like a network structure to better uh, be more agile. I have qualms with the word agile in itself, but. Like to, to respond more quickly to uh, changes in the, the business, changes in the market, having this like sort of top-down structure, I mean, like you need some sort of leadership at the top guiding things, but does that like overly handcuff the organization in the future? Well, to Cole's point, at the moment, we're doing it ad hoc. So Cole is saying once the decision is made really low down, you're kind of stuck with that decision. I'd have thought if there was a resource allocation function at the top, so think HR, but for all resources and in one team, uh, making those decisions, if they were your agile, hey, guys, there's a new technology out in the market, or uh, Bulgaria has come up with a wonderful new outsourcing, mm -hmm. uh, you make an agile decision to say, switch production from that resource to that resource. So their job really is just saying, what is the optimal production resource today at this moment in time? And you've got a bunch of elves out there constantly scanning <laughs> the environment, the productivity environment, saying, oh, new productivity resource there. You know, what's the cost of putting it in? What's the risk of putting it in? Yeah, it's good cost. It's good risk. Do it or no, bad cost better. Carry on as we are. Yeah, it probably depends on the uh, strategy of the organization as well, the market that they're playing in. You know, organizations that need to respond quickly probably cannot afford to go to such a strategy but like so like you're like monolithic organizations that are i don't know like insurance companies that can be a stable state can totally incorporate this sort of strategy in the future well can i make two comments yeah. there one is i think there's a um i think there's a a reticence to go that pathway max one is because any kind of mechanized decision making reduces human agency in making decisions. And so if you had a resource allocation model, you know, the kind of this, you know, this, this really sophisticated model you were just describing, that would remove people's own decision-making responsibilities. Oh, no, I wasn't saying automated, Cole. No, no, no. And, and, and then they, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. It's just an interesting observation. And then the second is, and, and there was this online discussion the other day about prescriptive analytics and why, you know, uh, organizations are having such a tough time moving from predictive to prescriptive. And I think this gets right at the heart of the issue, which is, I think it, it's kind of like human agency is removed in one, but the other is people don't like being told what to do. And prescriptive <laughs> analytics by definition is telling someone to do something differently or even automating that it's done that way without human intervention. Actually, actually funnily enough, prescriptive Prescriptive 
analytics, if you put it that way, is actually optimization analytics. So it's saying here are the available resources. How do we maximize our output given these resources? So it's a kind of a, you know, if that's what you're saying, that people don't like that. But moving, you, I don't know if you've kind of had the joy of studying optimization, but it's a great subject. I did a year um, of, of optimization. I did a course in it by luck, by the way, not intentionally. I needed a filler. <laughs> and, and M373 optimization sounded like an interesting gig. And it was mind, it was mind-blowingly interesting um, to see how you create models and you have you know, the target variable that you want to optimize. And so if you've got, if you have a top, by the way, if you used optimization and you said, here is the target share price that we need to reach, okay, it would help you to allocate all the resources to employees so they'd have a better experience, et cetera, and to the manufacturing and the shareholders um, so that it would provide a better balance in the organization. It's more the pity that we don't use formal optimization methods or resource allocation, in my opinion. Absolutely. And th this is where economists have the edge on IOs currently. That when they think about statistics or they think about value organization, they do think about optimization or that external variable that is the greater good to the organization. So to answer your question earlier, Scott, where do I think people analytics is going? I think that we are going to see a lot more optimization yeah. replacing a lot of predictive analytics. Interesting. You know, we most organizations haven't even got to predict analytics yet. So, you know, <laughs> you're going to be still, still working in dashboards, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Don't do a course in optimization, is my advice. If anybody wants to know what their kids should be doing, tell them to study optimization. Interesting. Wow. I mean, yeah, a, a lot of the technical skills can be automated, and we're going to see it more and more. And to your point, um, it, people say that, oh, it's going to free your time. You know, I, I've been in the game for, you know, 10, 12 years and it doesn't feel like I have more free time to do creative no. stuff. You no. just start seeing fewer people around you, I guess. It's like, the, I guess it's the future and they start being automated out of a job. So what, where can IOs provide value in the future? I suspect it's going to be soft skills and you're suggesting optimization as well. Anything else? Well, I, you know, by the way, I noticed shareholders have got a lot more free time. By the way, you'll be pleased to know. Even if, even if, even if you don't, somebody. Max's career advice: become a shareholder. <laughs> become a shareholder if you want to do that. Um, yeah, you know what can IOs do in the future? I think that there will be a top team in organisations in the next ten to fifteen years. A small top team, which my uh, friend and colleague and associate Paul Taffender uh, specialises in that small top team work. They will be doing resource allocation. What they push down into the organization will be highly process-driven, and it's becoming increasingly so. You know, digital HR is really what it's saying is automate HR in a process. Yeah, the processes aren't perfect, but for the most part, they're doing an okay job in recruiting people and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So there will be a really creative this. The leverage required of that top team, which you were sort of objecting to a little earlier, um, the leverage of that top team is going to be enormous. You'll have a handful, you know, 30, 40, 50 people, maybe, what we call group or uh, enterprise level or, or the exec team, and they will be making far more, they will be making all the creative decisions up there and then pushing processes down. So, you know. Yeah. Digital HR, digital marketing, digital manufacturing, digital da 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 da. Well, and, and to go even further and to go full circle here, that's going to put a super premium on reasoning ability that you yeah. mentioned earlier, Max. That's where it comes in. It's and the second exactly. reason is they're they're going to want to automate HR because HR is not your friend, <laughs> and that's from that article that we were discussing well, they earlier. Sure, won't be after they're automated. Yeah. Because you can go to that machine and you can beg it and say, but my kid was sick. She will say, I am really sorry that your kid was sick because somebody would have programmed it well. Like, you know, that's as good as it's going to get, but you are still fired. <laughs> your voice is going to be the robot voice, Max. You're perfect for it. <laughs> this is great. Man, like we have covered so much ground. And honestly, this is, I think this has been different than any of the guests we've totally. had on so far. Max, we're going to have to have you back. 
I don't know. Before we we wrap this thing up, uh, any closing thoughts for from you, Scott? And then then we'll give you the final word, Max. Yeah, I I think it's I, it's inevitable that cognitive is going to win out in the end. This has kind of been born in uh, all the research that we've seen, and uh, AI cannot uh, recreate creativity. And to some degree, you're starting to actually see some cool things like Dolly too doing some really neat stuff. But being able to reason will never go away. Yeah, I was thinking earlier, Scott, like eventually yeah. they won't need us on the podcast because yeah. GPT-3 will just be doing the podcast for us. You know, I, we'll be automated away. I welcome uh, robot Colin Scott eventually. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. Well, well, Max, what do you want to leave <laughs> us with? You've, you've been an amazing guest. Well, I have to say that it's, it's, uh, it's even more fun interacting with you guys uh, than it is listening to the podcast if that's humanly possible and I'm just wondering how whenever I'm facing a business problem how I wish I had the two of you there to talk through it like this because that would be gold I think that's the direction you guys need to be doing a, yeah. a tiger squad or a tiger hit squad that solves problems would be you guys are hot you make well, me think you ask me why I love the podcast because you really make me get, and you get ideas that I say that other people don't get. You get it, and you push them further. That's what I mean. I told you I was bored with the old analytics, all the old stuff. You guys force. You guys are doing what I hoped people analytics functions would do. Well, Scott and I will be your tiger squad for a nominal fee, Max. That's that's what we'll do. No, but that that's really high praise. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I, I don't know, Scott, do you have anything to say about that? Oh, yeah, that, that's super great accolades. And really, uh, Cole and I just wanted to talk about people analytics, like just share some thoughts and uh, have some fun while we're doing it. Super glad to have you on, and I'm sure we'll have you on in the future as well. Absolutely. Thanks for Thank joining us, so Max. Much, really good.